0: Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty.
1: It's the students.
0: It's the curriculum.
1: It's the inspiration.
0: Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast.
1: Well, welcome, everyone, to the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm Dan Ray, host of the program, and just a little bit of background about myself. I'm a graduate of Boston University Law School in 1974, have practiced law here in Boston uh, for many, many years, Uh, some uh, years more active than others. Uh, I've also interwoven a career as a broadcast journalist, 31 years working at WBZ-TV, and uh, now uh, into my third year at WBZ Radio, 10.30 on the AM dial, we host a program. Called Nightside every Monday through Friday night from 8 to midnight. And I have covered countless. Cases uh, in courtrooms, uh, local, state, and uh, and and federal cases. Uh, And uh, as I said, right now we uh, we spend a lot of time uh, every day getting ready for Nightside on Monday through Friday in WBZ radio. My guest today is Professor Linda C. McLean. She's the Paul M. Siskind Research Scholar and Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. Paul Siskind was the dean there uh, during my time as a student, and um, uh, Professor McLean is known for her work in family law and feminist legal theory. Her new book is entitled Gender Equality, Dimensions of Women's Equal Citizenship. She co-edited this book with Joanna Grossman. Uh, the book examines uh, problems of the continuing gap between formal commitments to gender equality and the equal citizenship of both women and men. It also develops strategies for closing that gap. The book has been called, quote, essential reading for those concerned with gender equality. Professor McLean is also a contributor to the to a blog uh, called the Feminist Law Professors. I want to welcome uh, Professor Linda McLean. Welcome, Professor. How are you today?
2: I'm fine. How are you?
1: Good. Um, first, sort of the, as as general question as we can get would be what what inspired you to uh, sit down and uh, and work on this book along with your co-editor Joanna Grossman.
2: Well, I think Joanna and I were were concerned about what you've just described, which is a gap between formal equality. Women are a very different place today than they were legally even 50 years ago. Certainly, 100 years ago in the United States and elsewhere, the gap between this formal equality and, and just a whole lot of inequality in various areas of uh, of everyday life. And and we wanted to sort of take stock of what what that was about and how to solve it. And so we just brought together some uh, scholars from law and political science and women's studies to to look at all the different ways in which. Equality uh, was important to achieve, it hadn't yet been achieved.
1: Now, we're going to get into some of those areas, but just the term equal citizenship, that's a term that I'm sure all of us understand those two words. Uh, you know, women, you know, a hundred years ago were denied the right to vote. So uh, certainly in in terms of uh, the ability to go in and cast a ballot, uh, that has been resolved. Uh, But there are many, many other areas where maybe citizenship is not as equal as it should be. What does the term equal citizenship, in your opinion, really require?
2: Well, I think equal citizenship refers to someone's status in society, their standing as a full member of society. And in law, we use that term a lot because we talk about equal protection and the equal status of of people under the law. But I think in terms of people who are members of a, of a country, of a nation, it, it, it really is, as you said, the formal rights, like the right to vote and things like that, the right to be free from discrimination. But it's also... Uh, you know your rights to be uh, fully participating in society, and sometimes the barriers to that may not be legal; they may be social, you know, or economic or cultural. Women's political leadership would be one example.
1: All right, and and for ex- well, if you talk about women's political leadership, it, probably most people. Don't realize that if you ask them today how many members of the United States Senate are, are female, um, the number actually 17. Uh, and since women represent about 52% of our population, comprise 52% of the population, I guess uh, women do not have equal representation uh, in the United States Senate. But that's, we'll get to that issue, get to some of the politics of it in a moment. The, the, um, can you give me some examples of when you talk about gender inequality or gender justice problems? If that's the way you characterize them, can you give us a, an example or two?
2: Well, sure. Um, just let's just stick with politics for a minute, and we, I know you want to come back to that. But you know, if you look at the United States compared to many other nations around the world, uh, our level of women in political office is much lower. Um, if you look at issues of partnerships in law firms, for example, although Uh, you went to law school at a time when there were starting to be more women in the class, and I know you told me at BU there was a commitment to increasing the number of women in the class. Even though there's now an equal number of women and men in the pipeline getting into law school and getting into law firms, somehow, several years into it, you still have very few female partners. uh, and, And some of this, I think, is due to gender bias and how you assess associates. Some of it is due to work family issues that law firms just haven't solved. Um, And uh, some of it is due just to, you know, the fact that a male partner may still feel more comfortable having lunch with a male associate than with a female associate. And um, so I think uh, representation at, at the top of various professions is still a real issue. And then, of course, closer to everyday life, you know, we still have tremendous problems of domestic violence. And uh, you know um, uh, that affects women's everyday quality of life as well. Those are just a couple examples that I could offer.
1: Again, we we come back to um, equal citizenship, and uh, uh, you you take you you take for example domestic violence. Um, There are situations where men are victimized by domestic violence, but the fact of the matter is, I think probably ninety or ninety-five percent of the victims of domestic violence. are are going to be women, uh, and I'm sure that that the reasons for that the the sociologists would probably tell us tell us go back to the cavemen days. I mean, not that we want domestic violence to be equal, but uh, what can be what can we do? What can the law do in that area that it already hasn't done? I know that, for example, in Massachusetts, uh, women go into court and they request a, a two hundred nine restraining order at the end of the day, it's a piece of paper, and it, it doesn't guarantee uh, their safety if the um, husband, ex-husband, boyfriend, or whatever uh, come comes home at, at midnight. That piece of paper doesn't do much good.
2: Well, no, you're absolutely right, and you're right that the law has changed because, you know, Massachusetts didn't always have that law, and there was a time when Uh, police and courts and everyone else just uh, turned a blind eye to family violence, partly because of some notion that it was private and a man's home was his castle, and we don't live in those days anymore, and yet there are still some real obstacles. I think one thing uh, you can do is try to educate children about nonviolent conflict resolution. I mean, I think you're right that women can also be perpetrators of domestic violence. There can be violent relationships, and I think people who've worked on this issue a long time really talk about, you know, domestic violence as a power, as a issue of power within relationships, and we need to teach we need to teach children uh, how to handle conflict nonviolently. We need to teach boys and girls uh, that uh, in intimate relationships you don't use physical violence as a, as a tool. And. We also have to address issues of entitlement that may, whatever the law says, people may still believe somehow that a husband is in charge and the wife should obey, and if she doesn't, then, you know, that's sort of grounds for, uh, you know, retaliation. It, it's. Um, it was sobering to read a news item in the New York Times recently about women's rights around the world where uh, a mother-in-law in India was describing how if... Uh, a wife uh, was not sufficiently compliant then a husband had a right to beat her i mean we think this is a, a thing of the past but there are still unfortunately there're still attitudes about uh you know, male prerogative and and female obedience that I think feed into this notion. That-
1: well, you know, e- even as we deal with issues here uh, in America, we still seem to struggle with those issues. I am concerned on the horizon about uh, a concept called Sharia law, uh, honor killings uh, in other societies, which are going to be incorporated into into our own society. Um, there's um, the <laughs> As difficult as things are for women here, uh, and I realize that there are, uh, there are some societies maybe where women are doing better than they are in the United States, but there are other societies around the world, particularly in the Middle East, uh, where women are still treated like chattel. Uh, and um, I'm seeing more examples of honor killings in this country where a, a father disagrees with a daughter's lifestyle, and, and that is really scary stuff.
2: Yeah, I think that um that's a very um extreme example of a violation of women's rights, including basically a right to life. And I think that Muslim women and men who were working on reform within Islam certainly target honor killings, as do human rights groups, as an issue that really, you know, must be addressed. And and if you look at some of the attitudes that contribute to this, there's notions about female shame and female sexual modesty and, uh, you know, uh, compliance with certain family norms. And, and I think that certainly not not every Muslim thinks that these are right and uh, that it's certainly not a, 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 a legally permitted practice in many parts of the world. But you're certainly right that in uh in some legal systems uh these types of killings are let's shall we say mitigated a bit the sentencing is mitigated for this. But in the United States, you're right, this is a big issue when you have groups that subscribe to a particular uh set of beliefs that clearly clash with uh, legal norms. Uh, you know, we expect those people to abide by uh by US law. But but let not to be long winded, but let's not forget that uh, you know, as recently as uh you know, a decade or so ago, we had a a judge in New England give a very lenient sentence when a man killed his wife in, because uh, he discovered her adulterous affair, and he got an extremely lenient sentence. So these things these things happen uh, cross culturally. You know. Well,
1: let me bring it back to our own situation here. We've uh, recently had a couple of, well, uh, two major uh, candidates in presidential races. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton ran for the Democratic nomination, lost out to Barack Obama. Alaska Governor Sarah Palin was John McCain's uh, running mate uh, last November, and we now. Have uh, two uh, women justices on the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well as Sonia Sotomayor. Um, do you see these developments uh, as as positive steps? I'm
2: yes, sure you must. they're they're very positive. I mean, it's you know we're not there all the way, but there's certainly a reason uh, to think this is a milestone, just as it's a milestone that Barack Obama is the president of the United States right now. Um so it is positive but there's still unfinished business. You have to look at the big picture, but you're right that this is a this is a positive development. Although, of course, there were two women on the Supreme Court uh, for a while now and then uh because of the retirement of O'Connor, we went down to one. So we haven't really made a net gain in terms of more women, but this is the first Latina on the court,
1: which is another breakthrough. Yeah, well, look, I, I guess in total, there've only been three women on the U.S. Supreme Court. I think there's been what 112 <laughs> or 115 justices on the Supreme Court right. uh, during the court's uh, uh, existence, and only of, of those 115, only three, and, uh, and and two are sitting there now. Um, there have been s- some progress. Uh, President Obama has uh, recently uh, created the White House Council on Women and Girls, and also signed the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Restoration. Act, which was a legislative uh, override over a uh, su- Supreme Court decision. So here we have the legislature, uh, the, the the Congress actually being ahead of the court on an issue. There are other uh, pressing gender equality issues that you see on your horizon?
2: Yeah, I think that the uh, White House counsel is a very interesting and important step, and it itself identifies a number of issues, like the pay gap between men and women, work-family issues, family violence, as we've already discussed, uh, you know, obstacles to uh, women's education. And the commission is always talking, also talking more globally about uh, issues of, of sex equality. But I think it's tremendous that the Obama administration is highlighting these. And as you no doubt know, Hillary Clinton has said that in their foreign policy, they want to make a signature issue gender equality.
1: And um let's come back to our profession or your profession, uh in and, and my second profession, and that is the uh the legal profession. Uh how far does the legal prof- how as far is the legal profession come and how far does it have to go?
2: Well, it's come a tremendous way. I mean, you know, if you bear in mind that in the nineteenth century uh and even into the early twentieth century women were considered unfit to practice law and our Supreme Court basically left that tradition in place in the Famous case of Bradwell versus Illinois. Uh, and really, um, until Title VII was adopted in 1964, there wasn't any positive federal law of sex equality. Um, and so, what I would say is a lot of formal barriers have fallen, uh, no doubt, and today our classes are about 50 50. But I think the lingering obstacles are if you look at where women are in the profession, um, according to some statistics Joanna just uh, put together, um, 17% of law firm partners are women, 16% of federal district court judges, 15% of law school deans and general counsel. These numbers are lower if you look at women of color. And so I don't think these numbers can be explained solely because of women's late entry into the profession, because as you've pointed out, you know, for 20 or 30 years now, women's numbers have been increasing so we have to try to sort out you know uh why is this underrepresentation at the top uh taking place
1: we're going to take a, a quick break here in this uh this podcast and we'll be back with professor linda McLean. Uh she is the uh the paul siskin research scholar and professor of law at boston university we'll be back uh, just uh, after this quick break
0: Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to lighter law school rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum.
1: Well, welcome back. Uh, I am the aforementioned Dan Ray, and I am uh, delighted to be joined uh, today by Professor Linda C. McLean of the the Paul M. Siskind Research Scholar and Professor at Boston University School of Law. And we're discussing her new book, Gender Equality, Dimensions of Women's Equal Citizenship. Um, Professor McLean, what are you suggesting to um, younger men and women who may witness or encounter uh, real gender inequality in the real world?
2: Well, I think that, um, obviously, they should know the current uh, state of the law, although a lot of this discrimination is very subtle. Um, They should, you know, not be afraid to speak up for uh, what they want, and... uh, one of the interesting things that some sort of popularizing books about women have brought out is women often don't ask. <laughs> they they may not know what their male counterparts are, are making. They may not think to ask for a raise. They may not think to ask for great assignments. And so to the extent there's cultural obstacles to sex equality, uh, one of the messages, I think, to women at least is to to ask. And uh, one of the messages to men is to not be afraid to Go against uh, what might seem like cultural norms about male employees. One of the big struggles men face when they try to be both active parents and active workers is a perception by employers that they're not serious. And and this is kind of a cultural barrier. Even though an employer may have programs in place that could help people be parents and, and, and lawyers or whatever, men may perceive that they pay a high penalty if they take advantage of that. In in the firm that I was with, Many years ago, I have seen real change in terms of attitudes towards parenting and resources to help people be both lawyers and and parents. So I think for women, you know, knowing your rights, kind of asserting yourself, for men, not being afraid to try to go up against, you know, cultural uh, uh, limits in some sense to what we think men may or may not do in society.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in, a, in a law firm, I think there's a lot of flexibility uh, for people to work from home uh, and for people to uh, periodically um, uh, s- slow down on some cases and then eventually speed up. So it seems to me that if there was any place in the world where men and women could periodically take time off to uh, tend to the development of their family life, it would be through through law firms. And I think law firms certainly could set that example. I assume you'd agree with that.
2: You know, that's a that's a because you're certainly right that there is some flexibility, uh, although certainly not as much flexibility as a law professor job, which I highly recommend to anyone. Uh, But at the same time, uh, one of the reasons that uh, there has has been some sense that it's very hard to change the practice of law is this kind of 24-7 attitude about serving clients. And, uh, you know, that can kind of butt up against this notion that there ought to be flexibility, particularly in fast-paced litigation. So I think you're right, but at the same time, I think firms have done better or worse jobs in trying to build that into the system. And of course, if, if associates perceive that they're going to pay a penalty of not being perceived as serious or being put on a different partnership track, then this may inhibit them trying to take advantage of this of this flexibility. It's it, It's in everyone's benefit to move toward this, but one of the questions is how much can a firm really accommodate this if they're up against other firms who they perceive as you know, being 24-7 out there for the client. No, right?
1: no, that I understand. But I'm saying, for example, you mentioned law school professors. Um, it's It would be more difficult uh, for um, school teachers, uh, for school systems uh, to accommodate, uh, you know, some of the vagaries of people's personal lives because I think that's what we're, what we're talking about. Or for that matter, someone who's running a trucking company, uh, they need to know that they're going to have truck drivers. I think law firms are uniquely positioned to set an example and show the world how it can be done, although I think you're absolutely correct Law firms have not yet stepped up to the plate on, on that. What what do you think we as a nation can do uh, to ensure equal citizenship for women? The Equal Rights Amendment, of course, back in the 1970s uh, came close to passing, uh, but didn't. I, I don't see that as coming back uh, on the horizon anytime soon. But what can we as a, as a nation do?
2: Well, I think we as a nation can uh, strengthen our commitment to equal opportunity and to anti-discrimination laws. There are a lot of obstacles that women face in, in prosecuting Title VII suits, the, the employment discrimination. Uh, you know, there's some issues with Title IX, which is equality, equal access to education, sports, whatever. I think we can strengthen our commitment to anti-discrimination. And I think Obama is, the Obama administration is, is well-positioned to kind of be on the bully pulpit about this. I think the first lady in in making work life balance one of her issues uh and and uh you know may well be an inspiration to many women and men who are thinking about how to have strong families but also uh you know meet the various economic needs they have to meet and and be full full members of society so I think those are a couple of things we could do. We also have to look at the health care issue is a great opportunity to look at the ways in which a lot of poor people, including poor women and, and children, simply don't have what they need, and and uh, to try to look for more of some of the the things that people need in order to be full citizens, the things that they really need to participate in society.
1: What what sort of feedback have you had uh, on on this book? I, I assume um, feedback not only within the legal community, but uh, from uh, from just uh, Regular plain everyday folks
2: um well, I think that uh you know in terms of the the uh reception of um of academics, it's been positive. Joanne and I have written a few columns on fine law uh, and we've gotten some positive comments from readers of fine law on these issues, and the occasional times that I write a blog or something about this, I get you know some fairly uh positive uh feedback, so I think um. I think that, uh, you know, we just are trying to, again, focus on this this uh, need to kind of acknowledge the progress we've made, but, but uh, keep moving forward, and I think it's a timely moment to do that because you've got the current administration focused both on domestic issues with this White House Council and global issues, and, and all of us can kind of reflect a little bit on what we could do to try to close that gap.
1: Now, um, your book is published by Cambridge university press. Um, where can folks go to, to find some more information? I assume it's in bookstores.
2: Uh, you can uh, find information about it on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Uh, you know, you can get discount copy on Amazon. You can, uh, go on the Cambridge website and, uh, learn more about it.
1: And I think there's also a, um, feminist dot Is that a, a contact group?
2: Uh, well there this is a blog to which I occasionally uh contribute I'm not uh they would not necessarily have any information on the book if you okay. just if someone wanted to go on my uh, page on the BU website they could certainly get information
1: Great. Well, um, thanks very much for, uh, uh, being a guest today. Gender equality dimensions of women's equal citizenship edited by Linda McLean and Joanna Grossman have enjoyed our uh, talking with professor Linda McLean of Boston university school of law. I hope you get a chance to, um, uh, look at the book, uh, and, uh, and consider some of the, some of the offerings. I want to, uh, thank, uh, you very much, uh, professor McLean for spending some time with us today. And I want to remind all of our listeners that, uh, all of our podcasts, uh, can be found. uh, Boston University School of Law can be found on the Legal Talk Network and also the Boston University Law School website, as well as iTunes. So until next time, this is Dan Ray uh, on behalf of the Legal Talk Network in Boston University School of Law saying have a great day, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.